Thanks, Aaron, for you and your team. In my next life, I'm going to be able to sing and play maybe as good as you guys. So thanks so much. Hey, great to see all of you here today. Uh, as Pastor Dan mentioned, uh, my wife Melanie and I uh, love and normally attend South Fellowship, but uh, over the last year, we've been in the distant country of Lakewood, Colorado, uh, where uh, I've been uh, serving as an interim pastor of a small church out there, and they're just about to get a new pastor. So uh, Lord willing, we'll tie the bow on that and then come back and, as you said, be able to worship here more frequently. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Pastor Ryan started a new series on Romans a while back. Is that right? And that's where you've all been? Well, we're going to dial back from Romans back to the Old Testament this morning, and there is a handout in your bulletin, Exodus chapter 2. We're going to walk our way through this narrative. So if you want to use that to follow along, that would be great. Before we uh, look in the scripture this morning, I'm going to ask us to uh, bow our heads and join our hearts together in prayer. Father, thanks so much for uh, all that you're doing in and through South Fellowship. Uh, Lord, just uh, lots of new people and lots of ministries and uh, perhaps maybe even a third service. And Lord, we just praise you today for your hand of grace and guidance and blessing on this church. And Lord, at a personal level, I thank you for every person here. Just ask that uh, wherever we're at today, emotionally or spiritually, relationally, financially, that you would be at work in our hearts and our lives and shaping, and molding, and calling us closer to a walk with Jesus. Lord, uh, we think about things around our world and our nation today. We uh, think about people in France who have lost loved ones, and we pray that you would minister there to them. We think of our president and our Congress, and we pray for wisdom for them. And Lord, as Pastor Dan mentioned, uh, we think about uh, sanctity of life, and we do pray for alternatives. We pray for other ministries around our city today. And uh, Father, now as we look into your word, we ask that uh, your spirit would lead and guide, that you might enlighten our minds, Lord, that you might touch our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. In the year 1787, at the age of 81, Benjamin Franklin addressed his fellow delegates at the Constitutional Convention that was then being held in the city of Philadelphia. Here's part of what he said. I've lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice... Is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured, dear sirs, in the sacred writings that, quote, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his incurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. We shall be divided by our little partial local interests. Our projects will be confounded. And we ourselves shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. Uh, Franklin was not known as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. There were things about Jesus that he did not believe. He didn't 
believe in Jesus' miracles. I'm not sure he thought that Jesus was God or rose from the dead. Franklin was much more a man of the 18th century enlightenment. His view of God was what we call deistic. He thought God was kind of this great clockmaker. He had wound up the universe and wound up the world and was kind of letting it run on its own. Yet, in this key moment in the creation of what we today would call the United States of America, Franklin's comments were spot on about the biblical doctrine of God's providence. Let me give you a definition, and then we're going to look at one here on the screen that's a little bit more technical. God's providence is the idea that he has never abandoned, nor will he ever abandon, any part of his creation. But he's always working within it to manage all things according to the counsel of his own will. Now, this statement that is on the screen comes from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Uh, Dan, I know that back in the day, South Fellowship was related to the Presbyterian Church, and I, I don't know if uh, any of you here are Presbyterians or come from a Presbyterian background. Uh, my wife, Melanie, was on the staff of a Presbyterian Church for a long time. So this is the heart and soul of a Presbyterian statement of faith. This was written in 1647 by some Presbyterians at the Westminster Abbey, and that's why they call it the Westminster Confession of Faith. Let's read this together in terms of how they defined God's providence. They said, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Now that's a pretty technical definition. Let me put it in the vernacular. God's providence is the idea that he takes everything, the good, the bad, and the in-between. And he uses every single part of that to accomplish his good purposes. God's providence covers every element of our lives. But this morning, what I want to do is I want to dial in on two of its most important aspects, especially as it affects you and me. I want us to know this morning that God's providence is always very personal and it always has a larger purpose. Now, the reason God's providence is very personal is because you are a very unique human being. You've been created in a very unique way and so God's providence is going to be very personal in your life. To make this point, if you don't mind, I'd like to quote from one of my favorite theologians, none other than Dr. Seuss. If you'd never been born, then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad in a tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. Worse than all that, you might be a wasn't. A wasn't has no fun at all. No, he doesn't. A wasn't just isn't present. But you? Well, you are you. Now, isn't that pleasant? 
Today you are you and it's truer than true. There's no one alive who's youer than you. Shout loud, I'm lucky to be who I am. Thank goodness I'm not just a clamor or a ham or a dusty old jar of gooseberry jam. I am what I am. And that's a great thing to be. If I say so myself, happy birthday to me. God's providence is always very, very personal. But the second thing is, God's providence always has a larger purpose. And that's why he's at work through the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the insides and outsides of our lives. I mean, we see this throughout the scripture. There are many, many examples of this. Perhaps one of the most famous examples in the Bible comes to us in the last 13, 14 chapters of the book of Genesis, where we're told the story of the patriarch Joseph. If you've read that story or you remember that story, you realize that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And he was sent down to Egypt. And there he started to serve in the house of Potiphar. And it says that God was with him providentially. And yet then he was falsely accused of rape and he was thrown into prison. And once again, the author tells us that even in prison, God was with him providentially. And then through a series of events related to the empire, Joseph is elevated to the second highest position in the greatest civilization at that time in world history. And there's this famine, and he begins to prepare Egypt for the famine. And his brothers come down from the promised land to Egypt to buy grain, and he has to interface with them. And then eventually the whole family comes down. And at the end of Genesis 50, his brothers are afraid now that he's going to kill them. But he tells them this in one of the greatest statements of God's providence in the entire scripture. He said, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good so that there might be the saving of all these lives. See, God's providence is always personal and it always has a larger purpose. And in this passage in Exodus chapter 2 this morning, we're going to see that. Now, in the larger narrative here, there are three different episodes. And each of them describe a different phase in the early life of Moses. And God is not mentioned in any of these first three episodes. But as we examine them, what we're going to see is the providential hand of God working personally with Moses in order to move him towards the fulfillment of a larger purpose. Now, as we walk our way through these three episodes, what I'd like you to do this morning, and I'm going to be doing this, is I'd like for us to reflect on our lives and how God has worked providentially through the various seasons of our lives, through the good and the bad, the ups and downs, the ins and outs, to shape us into the people that we are here today. So to do that, let's look at this first phase, which I've labeled growing up. Let's listen to what the inspired author says here. He says, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. You'll remember at the end of chapter 1, Pharaoh's trying to kill all the Hebrew baby boys. So she hides him. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. 
His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. That's a very interesting little comment there, isn't it? Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby, and he was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister, that is Moses' sister, shows up. Asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Amazing. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses saying, I drew him out of the water. Now, as we read through this little episode here, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's this genocide against all these Hebrew baby boys, and Moses' mother realizes she can't keep him any longer, so she builds this tiny little ark. She sets him in the ark and sets it among the reeds there in the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter just happens to show up and discovers the baby, and then Moses' sister is there, and negotiates this deal where now by Moses is going to be nursed by his own mother. And then eventually, as he grew up, it says that his mother gave him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he was raised in Pharaoh's court. And according to Acts chapter 7, we're told there that Moses would grow and become a man of great power in word and deed. Well, that's kind of the flow of events, but let's kind of look at what's really going on here behind the story. I mean, there's no question as we look at this episode that this is an amazing tale of survival. I mean, it's so amazing that people in Hollywood might be tempted to make a movie or two or three about the life of Moses. And what I want us to note is at this point, while the story in this episode has a fairly happy ending, and there's clear evidence of God's providential hand, I don't think there can be any question that Moses grew up in what we might call a fairly convoluted family environment. I mean, friends, just for a minute here, let's reflect a little bit on what Moses experienced growing up. I mean, first of all, he's born into an environment that's incredibly dangerous and unsafe for children like him. He's a Hebrew. He's abandoned by his mother, even for the best of reasons only to be returned to her later and then given back to Pharaoh's daughter again. He's nurtured and raised in this completely polytheistic pagan environment, the court of Egypt, but somewhere along the way he develops an emotional attachment and affinity to his own ethnic group, the Hebrews. He's educated in the Egyptian court. He's given enormous privileges. But I surmise he was probably never completely trusted because he's a Hebrew. And so consequently, as an outsider, as he's growing up, he never feels like he fits in anywhere. And I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, if maybe because of the experiences he had of rejection, that as he grows up, he develops a big chip on his shoulder. Yeah, he learned to cope, but underneath there was all kinds of stuff going on. 
what this episode tells you and tells me is that for good or bad, our families of origin create the emotional and the psychological and the spiritual context for how we view life and how we make our way through life. That's been true for you, and that is true for me. I was raised in a family where my mom and dad were Depression-era World War II kids. Those were enormously painful events with a lot of losses. And I can remember my mom telling me when I was a little kid that at the end of World War II, she and my dad were just glad that he was alive and that they could be married and that they could have a family. They were just so grateful for that. And so in my family of origin, here were the key values that were stressed. Frugality, because my parents never had much money. Education, because education was viewed as the way ahead. And obedience, because you were a child and you had a role in the family and you were to do what you were told to do. Now, I look back on my family of origin, and I think I've reflected on it enough to know I'm very, very thankful for the basic foundation they gave me, but I've also reflected on the fact that it was a family environment that had some holes in it. Emotionally in places, it was pretty shut down. And that really influenced me as I was growing up, and it encouraged me or facilitated some decisions I made growing up that were not necessarily good. And yet, as I've reflected on my years of upbringing in my family of origin, and I didn't grow up in church world, I can see God's providential hand on my life through my family. Now, what I'd like to ask you to do is reflect on your family of origin. If you don't mind, I'm going to ask you some questions to help you do that. Did you come from an intact family, or did you come from what we call a broken home? Did you enjoy a rich experience of love and nurture? Or did you suffer along the way from some emotional deprivation, which I would say that I did, or some even physical deprivation? Was your family Christian? Moral? Completely irreligious? Or somewhere in between? What kind of physical health did people in your family enjoy because physical health or lack thereof really influences the way the family operates? What was really, really good about your family? What was maybe not so good about your family? I want to encourage us to do a little bit of family inventory this morning and reflect on where we can see God's providential hand at work in our lives. See, can we look at the families that we were raised in and say, you know what, that was absolutely great, and I really, really, really want to build on that. Or maybe that wasn't so great, but it really influenced me, and I need to be aware of that. Or maybe if things weren't quite so good, we need to say, you know what, that was pretty damaging, and I need some help to process my way that. As time would go on, Moses was going to need to do the exact same thing. 
he would build on the faith tradition of his family of origin and a love for his people. But he would also keep what he learned in the educational system from the court of Egypt. He would keep some of the sophistication of Egyptian culture. But then there was a lot of other stuff that he grew up with that he would need to discard, that he would need to get rid of if he were going to become the man that God wanted him to become. Growing up is the first context I want us to reflect on this morning. The second is what I call moving out. Let's look at the next episode in this narrative. It says, one day after Moses had grown up, we think he's somewhere between 35 and 40 years old now. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were, the Hebrews, and watched them at their hard labor. They're enslaved by the Egyptians. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Now note this this next statement because it's an editorial comment. The author's telling us what Moses did. Glancing this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Premeditated murder. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler or judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I have done must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Despite the fact that he is the prince of Egypt, Moses has a deep emotional connection to his own people. He sees them being oppressed and there's something within him that rises up. He, he hates injustice. And he murders the Egyptian. And I think we need to sit on that for just a moment, friends. It was premeditated, as the text said. He glanced this way and that, and then he murders him. And then he's rejected by the fighting Hebrews and discovers that his secret is out. So he leaves Egypt and travels about 250 miles to the east-northeast because he learns that Pharaoh is after him. You know, this is a relatively short section of Scripture, but there's a lot going on here. So I want us to pause for a moment and reflect on this text. I said that because of his family of origin and the way he grew up, Moses seemed to have had a chip on his shoulder. And it looks like in situations of conflict, he has a real strong tendency to power up. And now as a young man, as he's moving out onto his own, he finds a situation that taps into his sense of justice. This is obviously an unjust situation. And that's a good thing he has, but it also causes him to power up to the point where he murders a man. One of the things we want to take away from this particular episode in this narrative is it shows us that we all have a shadow side. That's an element of our personality that's deep under the surface of everyday life, but given certain circumstances, given certain elements, it's going to come out and come out sometimes with a vengeance. 
Friends, as we reflect on our families of origin, as we reflect on our lives, as we reflect on the decisions we've made as we have grown up and moved out, or if you're in the process of getting ready to move out, how would we define our own shadow side? In what areas of life, what kinds of circumstances are we individually, personally vulnerable to sin and all its destructive consequences? Some of us here may be very vulnerable to sexual immorality. That's our shadow side. Others of us here may be very vulnerable to greed into materialism. We get a huge rush when we buy things because we think that that identifies us. I doubt if this is true, but maybe someone here, their shadow side is arrogance and pride. Maybe, just maybe, some of us here might be like Moses. Our shadow side is, is that we're we're tempted in, in situations of conflict to, to give rise to anger and to power up, maybe even to the point of verbal or physical abuse. What we want to do here, friends, is reflect on where we're most vulnerable and how the Lord might be working in us and through us to help us develop out emotionally and spiritually. But I also want us to notice something else about this narrative. Moses is a premeditated murderer here. He murdered a man. But what this text shows us is no deed that you have ever done or I have ever done, nothing we have ever sinfully engaged in can keep us from the love and the grace of God in Jesus. If we repent... If we give ourselves over to him and his providential and redemptive work in our lives. In time, Moses would become not just a great leader, he would become a great spiritual man. Even though clearly he has an enormous failure here. I have a very, very good friend. He's just a huge blessing in my life. He's come to town this week. I get a little bit emotional when I talk about him because he's been nothing but a huge blessing to me. Years ago, and some of you here would know his name, some of you here have read some of his books, years ago, he committed adultery. His marriage stayed stayed together, fortunately, but it caused enormous pain in his family, it ruined his ministry. And he was marginalized for quite a while. But he was very humble, very penitent, did everything he possibly could to lay himself before the Lord. And in time, the Lord totally restored him. And now, providentially, the Lord is hugely using this guy. He has a global ministry. He speaks all around the world. He speaks in some of the largest churches in the United States of America. And he's had nothing but a positive, redemptive influence on me. I'd like for you to take just a moment and reflect, not just on your years of growing up, but your years of moving out. Some of you haven't quite moved out yet, but you will be. You'll be moving out on your own, starting life. 
What were the key decisions that you made from ballpark, let's say the ages of 18 to 35 or 40? Were you making most of your decisions out of the shadow side of your personality? Or were you making decisions out of a heart that was more or less fully devoted to Jesus as your Lord and your Savior? What successes have you had in life? What failures have you had in life? And if you have had some failures, how did you respond to those? As you look back over the last 10 to 15 to 20 years of your life, can you see the providential hand of God in your life in a personal way? Can you see how God has used those or how he is using those to move you to where he wants you to be? I want to suggest to you that's exactly what God was doing here with Moses. Let's look at this third episode in this narrative. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Now once again, notice, he sees some people who are being oppressed. He sees people in need and he comes to their rescue. He's got this huge gift of help and he hates injustice. And so he helps these daughters of this priest, Raul. When the girls returned to Raul, their father, who would later be renamed Jethro, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Well, where is he? He asked his daughters. Why'd you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. In other words, we've got to show this guy some hospitality here. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. And Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershon, saying, I've become an alien in a foreign land. Well, as we saw from the end of the previous episode, he flees from Pharaoh, he flees from Egypt, goes about 250 miles to the east-northeast to the land of Midian. And there he rescues these young women from these abusive shepherds, and then eventually he meets their father, and he marries into the family, and he has a son, and he settles down into the family shepherding business. He enters the phase that I've called settling down. And I would suggest to you, friends, that God is working providentially to get him to this exact place at this time in his life. The peace and the quiet of the desert functioned as a retreat for Moses from all the power plays, all the busyness, all the demands of life as a prince of Egypt. And the reality of a job shepherding sheep would now allow him to develop out his skill sets of leadership and management. Some real skills he's going to need going forward. The embrace of a loving family helped him to come to a much clearer sense of who he was and where he fit, something, something he had never had in Egypt. In fact, this last statement here, I've become an alien in a foreign land, it's a weird statement in the original text, and I personally think that this English translation is, is, is wrong. And I asked a really close friend of mine who's a Hebrew expert, and he said he agrees with me. The, the emotion behind that statement is, I've, I finally got a family that loves me at last. Friends, once again, I want to ask you, and I'm going to do the same thing. 
to reflect upon our lives if we've entered this phase of life called settling down, or if maybe we're in the process of doing that. Did we get married? Did we have a family? Did we choose to stay single, or have we been single for a long time? And I speak as an expert there. Most of my adult life, I've been, was single until I met Melanie and we got married here about six years ago. Did you choose a career? How has that played itself out? Has God been providentially involved in that? Over the years, from your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, some of us here are in our 50s or 60s or 70s, have we seen God's providential hand in our lives? Now, I noted at the beginning, God's providence is always very personal in our lives, and it always has a larger purpose. And that was never more true than in the life of this man, Moses. Let's look at the last episode in this narrative, and this is where God finally shows up. Here's what the author tells us. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. Now notice this. The Israelites groaned in their slavery, and they cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, and he was concerned about them. God's mentioned three times in this very short section of the narrative, and it's clear that he is deeply heartfelt concerned about the plight of his people. They are under enormous oppression, and they're crying out for deliverance. And there's only one guy on the planet who has Hebrew blood pouring through his veins, Egyptian education in his head, experience at the court of Pharaoh, and the skill set to shepherd a million-plus refugees out in the desert for 40 years. His name is Moses. And God has been providentially at his work in his life in a very personal way to prepare him for the great task of leading the Hebrews in Exodus out of Egypt and forming Israel into a nation. Friends, what was true for Moses is true for you and me. Our situations are different, but God's providential work is always very personal and it always has a larger purpose. Years and years ago, when I finished my undergrad, I was looking for a teaching job. And I finally landed a job in a small town on the western slope, teaching high school history and coaching boys basketball. And the name of the school was Sirocco High, and the name of the town was Oak Creek. And I've lived in Colorado my whole life, and I had never heard of Oak Creek until this job position came up. Well, to make kind of a long story short, Bill Meek, who was the superintendent, was a really godly Christian, and he hired me. And a couple of months after I started teaching, we started a Bible study. And the Lord really had his hand on the Bible study, and a lot of kids came to know Christ. And one of the kids who came to know Christ that first year was named Jeff Johnson. Well, Jeff eventually graduated from Sirocco and he went to CSU and he met his wife Heidi and they got married. And then he and I kind of rendezvoused back in Denver a few years later at our church. And Jeff eventually went on to start a ministry downtown that some of you here know about called Mile High Ministries. And one of the aspects of Mile High Ministries is the Issachar Fellowship where they train 
young urban leaders to minister the faith of Jesus and justice in the inner city of Denver. Now, when Bill Meek hired me to teach history and coach basketball, that's what he was hiring me to do. But in the providence of God, what God was doing was looking out 35 years ahead because he said, there's going to be some people in the inner city of Denver and they're going to need to be well led and we're going to get Jeff here and get him there and train up these leaders because God always has a larger purpose in mind. Now, let me move from the deserts of Midian and the mountains of Colorado in the inner city of Denver to this room here in Littleton. Brothers and sisters, there are lots and lots of people in this community, this city, this country, and around the world, and they are crying out for help because of their slavery. They need hope. They need help. And for those of us who have been called into personal relationship with Jesus, one of the things that he wants us to do as his disciples is to be open to providing that help and that hope. He has been providentially involved in your life and my life at a very personal level for the larger purpose of ministering grace and love and hope and help to a world crying out to be set free from the oppression of sin and injustice and oppression. Friend, from the very first moment the doctor slapped you on the bottom and you breathe your first breath up to this day, January 18th, 2015, he's been at work in your life providentially in a very personal way to prepare you for the larger purpose of kingdom advancement. Now, what that is for you probably is going to be very different than what it is for me because once again, your calling and my calling are different and it's very personal. But for some of you in here, Pastor Dan just mentioned about alternative pregnancy center. Maybe you have experience in here one way or the other personally or with a family member of someone who has suffered abuse or the trauma of abortion. And you can provide help and hope there. Maybe some of you here are in middle school or high school and there are kids that you know, kids on the margins. And the Lord's calling you to reach out to them. Maybe it's something more what I call in-house ministry. Maybe the Lord has given you providentially great gifts with kids. Great gifts with kids. And he's calling you to help out in the children's ministry here at South Fellowship. Or maybe some of you here have been providentially shaped and molded to provide help and hope to senior citizens. Did you know that every day in the United States, every single day in the United States, 10,000 people turn 65? Yesterday, 10,000 turned 65. Today, 10,000 will turn 65. Tomorrow, 10,000 will turn 65. In other words, you've got this enormous demographic shift going on. As I tell my students at Denver Seminary, seniors ministry is no longer the ministry of the future. It's the ministry of now. And maybe God has providentially shaped you to engage in that kind of a ministry. Or maybe for some of you here, just maybe, something more global. 
Do you realize the front line of Christian mission in the world today, the literal front line of Christian mission is Europe? And we've just seen why. You've got all these secularized countries with large Muslim immigrant communities and they don't know what to do with each other. And the only hope any of those people have is the good news of Jesus. Frontline missions. And maybe some way or another, maybe God's providentially been at work in you to prepare you for the larger purpose of something like that. Friends, I don't know how God has worked in your life. I just know he has been at work providentially in a personal way, and he has been at work in a personal way for the larger purpose of helping you, helping me, helping this church extend the good news of his son. So this week, I want you to reflect on that. I want you to think about that. I want you to pray about that. And then what I want you to do is say, Lord, you providentially prepare me, and now you want to use me, and I'm going to leverage my time, my talent, and my treasures in whatever capacity you can use me in, Lord, to tell people about Jesus and give them hope and give them help. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to come up and sing another song. Father, thanks for your love as you showed us in Jesus and you have expressed it to us in our lives. Help us to take that seriously, Lord, and then share it with others. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.